0: Well, hello, my name is Aaron Brake, and I will be doing a three-part series on the topic of abortion. This first part, will be looking at the case for life. In part two, we'll be going over six bad ways to argue for abortion. And in part three, we will be looking at handling objections with grace and truth. My goal over the course of this series is to help train Christians and other pro-life advocates to make a persuasive case for the pro-life view and defend that view in the marketplace of ideas. I want to help equip you to make an intelligent and gracious case for life in defense of unborn human beings. So let's jump right into part one, the case for life. First, we're going to look at the question, why even talk about abortion in the first place? Let me give you three reasons very quickly. First, we talk about abortion because the stakes are so high in this debate. Now, this is true whether you consider yourself pro-life or pro-choice. Let's think about that for a minute. If the pro-choice view is correct then women have a fundamental right to abortion and pro-lifers are attempting to pass laws which could be considered oppressive, misogynistic, and interfere with what they can and cannot do with their own body or bodily autonomy. On the other hand, if the pro-life view is correct, then that means that since 1973, we have put to death nearly 60 million of the most vulnerable and defenseless members of the human community in the United States alone. That's nearly 3,000 every day or one abortion every 30 seconds. So first, whatever your view, the stakes in this debate are high. Second, we want to look at the topic of, of abortion because a persuasive, logical defense of the pro-life position, position is rarely heard. The pro-life view can often be caricatured as a sort of a religious, fundamentalist, anti-science, and anti-woman position, but nothing could be further from the truth. This debate is not about who can yell or scream the loudest or who has the cleverest cliché. It is about discovering the truth of the matter. And so my goal in this series is to present a well-reasoned, articulate, and winsome case for the pro-life view that is argued from both science and philosophy. And each one of us as pro-life advocates uh, needs to be equipped to engage. The third reason we want to look at the abortion debate is because as Christians, Scripture requires us to do so. In Luke 10, we read about the parable of the Good Samaritan and how we are to love our neighbor. Not just in thought and deed, but in action as well. Well, when it comes to the unborn who are in the womb, the question we must ask is, is the unborn my neighbor? The answer to that question is yes, if the unborn are human beings. And if that's the case, then we have a responsibility to love and protect them and to defend their right to life. Before I lay out a case for the pro-life view, I want to deal with some distractions. What the abortion debate is not about. As I'm sure you know, the topic of abortion can be a very contentious and divisive issue. There are all sorts of distractions that can enter into the debate, and I want to quickly address two of those. First, the abortion debate is not about gender politics. There are some pro-abortion choice advocates who would say, I shouldn't even be speaking on this issue. After all, I'm a man, and abortion is a woman's issue. The first thing to point out is that arguments don't have gender. A pro-life woman could just as easily stand here and and give you the exact same presentation, arguments, and evidence for the pro-life view. Gender is irrelevant when it comes to the truth of the matter or speaking out against injustice. We need both men and women to give a voice to the voiceless and to help defend the defenseless. Christopher Kayser, The Ethics of Abortion... There is simply no such thing as the women's perspective on abortion or the experience of women with abortion. There is no female perspective on this issue any more than there is a male perspective or a brown-eyed person's perspective. In other words, women disagree on the issue of abortion just as men do. And as many pro-life apologists have pointed out, if men are not allowed to address the abortion issue, then it's all the more reason to overturn Roe v. Wade. After all, that case was decided by nine male Supreme Court justices. Second, this debate is not about condemning people. There are many women and men who suffer from post-abortive guilt. Women who have had abortions and men who perhaps perhaps paid for an abortion or maybe pressured a girlfriend into getting one. Uh, The answer to this guilt is not further condemnation, and that's not my purpose. Uh, Nor is the answer to guilt denial. The answer to guilt is forgiveness and redemption and healing and that is found in jesus christ alone and so if you are here or listening to this as scott klusendorf said would say uh, you don't need an excuse you need an exchange just as all of us do your sinfulness for christ's righteousness Uh, god is ready to forgive the sin of abortion just like other sins if we are willing to confess and repent and place our faith in jesus for salvation So, while I will largely be dealing with the intellectual side of abortion, I don't want want what I'm saying to come across as cold or calloused in that sense. Now that we have some of the preliminaries out of the way, let me start by saying this. The reason I am pro-life is very simple. I am pro-life because it is wrong to kill innocent human beings simply because they are unwanted in the way and can't defend themselves. Now, some listening to that might think this is an extreme oversimplification of the abortion debate. It is not that simple because abortion is much more complicated than that. After all, abortion is a very complex issue because there are so many things we need to think about. We need to think about things like privacy and choice, unwanted children, economic hardship, and so on and so forth. Not only that, but women can often face emotional and psychological trauma i think the problem however is that this confuses psychological complexity with moral complexity and let me explain what i mean by that no one denies that abortion may be a psychologically complex issue women may struggle mentally and emotionally with their decision regarding abortion but it doesn't follow that abortion is morally complex it is wrong to kill innocent human beings simply because they are unwanted a mother suffering from postpartum depression may struggle psychologically about killing her newborn, but that doesn't mean killing newborns is somehow morally ambiguous. Again, Christopher Kayser states, If there is a human problem, we should seek to eliminate the problem, not eliminate the human. Now, Greg Kochel in his book, Precious Unborn Human Persons, offers a very helpful illustration that shows how the abortion debate can be clarified to one central question. Kokel says, Imagine you're standing at your sink washing dishes, and your son or daughter comes up behind you and says, Mommy, Daddy, can I kill this? Now your back is turned, you're facing the sink, so you can't see what they're holding. What is the first question you're going to ask your son or daughter? Well, the first question you're going to ask is, What is it? When they ask the question, Can I kill this? you're going to say, What is it? Is it a spider? Is it a cockroach? Is it the next-door neighbor's cat? Uh, depending on what they're holding, you're going to answer that question very differently. Well, when it comes to the issue of abortion, we cannot answer the question, can we kill the unborn, until we answer the prior question, what is the unborn? So Kokel puts it this way, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for Is adequate. In other words, if the unborn is not a human person, why would we need to offer any justification at all? Just have the abortion. If abortion is really no different than a tonsillectomy or an appendectomy or simply the removal of an unwanted tissue mass, then what's the issue? But if the unborn is a human person, no justification is adequate. You cannot justify killing the unborn based on the reasons offered for elective abortion. So it's important that we remember in our conversations about abortion, we need to keep the debate focused on the central question. What is the unborn? It's really You really can't emphasize this enough. Let me quickly illustrate how this might play out in conversation. Uh, a pro-abortion choice advocate might say something like, Well, look, abortion is a private decision made between a woman and her doctor. How should you respond to that? Well, you can respond by saying this. Is it okay for a woman to kill her two-year-old as long as she does it in the privacy of her own home? A pro-choice advocate might say, well, no, that's different. To which you respond, well, why is it different? Well, because the two-year-old is a human being. To which you can say, so that's the issue then, isn't it? What is the unborn? If the unborn is a human being like the two-year-old, then we are no more justified in killing them in the name of privacy than we are the two-year-old. A pro-choice advocate might say, well, look, you don't really want to force these women to have children when they're suffering from economic hardship. They can barely provide for themselves, and now you're going to force them to take care of a child. How do you respond to that? Well, again, we need to focus the debate on the one question that matters. So you might respond by saying, well, is it okay for a woman to kill her two-year-old if the woman is suffering from economic hardship? Well, no, that's different. Well, why is it different? Well, because a two-year-old is a human being. So that's the issue then, isn't it? What is the unborn? Because if the unborn is a human being like the two-year-old, then we are no more justified in killing them in the name of economic hardship than we are the two-year-old. Well, you don't want to force women to have handicapped children, do you? Well, is it okay for a woman to kill her two-year-old if her two-year-old is handicapped? Well, no, that's different. Well, why is it different? Well, because the two-year-old is a human being. So again, that's the issue, isn't it? What is the unborn? If the unborn is a human being like the two-year-old, then we are no more justified in killing them because of handicaps than we are the two-year-old. So you'll notice in these conversations that we have not even begun to actually argue for the pro-life position. All we are doing is clearing away some of the common distractions and side issues which don't address the moral question of abortion. And we want to simplify the issue to the one question that matters, and that is, what is the unborn? And these conversations also employ a very helpful tactic, uh, which is called trot out the toddler. And here's how that works. Whenever you hear a reason that's presented for elective abortion, you ask yourself if this particular justification works for killing a toddler. Uh, If not, then the argument assumes the unborn are not human. Now, what you'll find is that many of the popular sort of street-level arguments used to justify elective abortion that you hear so often in politics or social media uh, all have the same problem. They beg the question by assuming that the unborn are not human. So you shouldn't let them get away with that. Remember, what is the unborn is the question that has to be resolved. It is something that has to be argued for and not merely assumed. We cannot answer the question, can I kill this? until we answer the prior question, what is it? So let's look at the pro-life syllogism. Uh, The case for life that I'll be defending can be put into the following argument. It goes like this. Uh, Premise one, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Premise two, elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, elective abortion is wrong. Again, It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, elective abortion is wrong. Now, this is a very simple, straightforward argument that I use all the time and can be easily memorized. In fact, if you are a pro-life advocate or you are interested in making a case for the unborn, you need to memorize this argument. So let me point out two things about it. Uh, First of all, it's a valid argument. Uh, If it is true that it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, And it's true that elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Then it follows that elective abortion is wrong. So the next question we have to ask is, are premises number one and two, are they true? Uh, What I'll be doing in this first talk is defending the truth of both of those statements. Second, this argument cannot be dismissed as quote-unquote religious As Francis Beckwith has pointed out in his book, Politics for Christians, there really is no such thing as a religious argument. An argument is either valid or invalid, sound or unsound. In other words, it's either a good argument or it's not. You'll find in your conversations that some people will attempt to simply dismiss your argument by calling it religious so that they don't have to actually interact with it. Uh, But that is the intellectually lazy approach. A secular pro-life advocate could just as easily use and defend this same argument. In fact, many of them do. Uh, Finally, let me define what I mean by elective abortion. Uh, Abortion, as I define it, is the intentional killing of a human being. And as we'll see later on, uh, this definition should be uncontroversial. Elective abortions are those abortions which are not medically necessary to save the mother's life now the vast majority of abortions around 90 percent are obtained for socioeconomic economic reasons but sometimes the question is raised what about when the life of the mother is in danger and one of the most common cases where this is seen is uh, with ectopic pregnancies now ectopic pregnancies occur when conception has taken place but the embryo implants somewhere such as in the fallopian tube rather than traveling down and implanting in the uterine wall so as the embryo grows, the fallopian tube will burst and result in internal hemorrhaging for the woman. Now, Tragically, in these cases, there's nothing we can do to save the life of the unborn. But if we don't do anything, it's possible the woman may hemorrhage and die. So the question is, what is the greatest moral good we can do in these situations? Well, pro-life advocates agree with the principle that it is better to save one life than to lose two. Uh, But these surgeries should not be considered abortion because the intent is different. The intent is not to directly kill the embryo, but rather to save the life of the mother. And so while the death of the unborn is foreseen, it is not intended as, as it is with elective abortion. The intent in these cases is to save the life of the mother. So by elective abortion then, I mean those abortions not necessary to save the life of the mother. Now let's move into the area of embryology. Uh, Most people agree with the first statement of our argument, but we'll come back to that a little later. So let's start by looking at the second statement of our argument, and that is elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Now I can sum up the evidence uh, from the science of embryology this way. Uh, The science of embryology establishes that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. It's true that the unborn are not fully mature or developed yet, but they are whole human beings nonetheless. So let me give you guys some quotes from uh, some science and embryology textbooks. In their book, Human Embryology and Teratology, the authors state, Although life is a continuous process, fertilization, which incidentally is not a moment, is a critical landmark because, under ordinary circumstances, a new, genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female pronuclei blend in the oocyte. In their book, The Developing Human, Clinically Oriented Embryology, the authors state, Human development begins at fertilization, when a sperm fuses with the oocyte to form a single cell the zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. The zygote divides many times and becomes progressively transformed into a multicellular human being through cell division, migration, growth, and differentiation. Uh, Keith Moore and Persaud, in their book Before We Are Born, uh, gives this definition of zygote. This cell, formed by the union of an oocyte and sperm, is the beginning of a new human being, i.e. an embryo. Dr. Patton, in his book, Human Embryology, states, The formation, maturation, and meeting of a male and female sex cell are all preliminary to their actual union into a combined cell or zygote, which definitely marks the beginning of a new individual. Okay, in other words, you have 23 chromosomes from the mother and 23 chromosomes from the father, which come together to form a new genetically distinct living whole human being. That is what science tells us. This is something even the more sophisticated pro choice advocates acknowledge that the unborn are members of the human community. Peter Singer, in his book Practical Ethics, states. It is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as an equivalent to member of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. And the same is true of the most profoundly and irreparably intellectually disabled human being. David Boonin, in his book A Defense of Abortion, states, Perhaps the most straightforward relation between you and me on the one hand, and every human fetus on the other, is this. All are living members of the same species, Homo sapiens. A human fetus, after all, is simply a human being at a very early stage in his or her development okay again to summarize what the science of embryology tells us is that each of us as individuals began to exist at conception as distinct living and whole human beings in other words you didn't come from an embryo you once were an embryo you began as a human being and will remain so until death now what does it mean when i say that the unborn are distinct living and whole human beings. Well, let's look at each one of those one by one. First, the unborn are distinct. The unborn is genetically distinct from both parents. It is not a part of the mother, like a kidney or an appendix. It possesses its own unique structure of chromosomes and actively directs his or her own internal self-development and maturation. The unborn is living. The unborn meets the criteria for life. It is a living organism. It is growing metabolizes, converts food to energy, and it reacts to stimuli. In other words, dead things don't grow, metabolize, or react to stimuli. The unborn is whole. Nothing is added to the unborn after conception, such as genetic information or programming. The unborn is whole and complete. All the unborn needs to continue developing is time, nourishment, and a proper environment, just like every other human being. Now, philosopher Richard Stith points out that one of the reasons there's often a disconnect in dialogue between pro-life and pro-choice advocates has to do with failing to understand the difference between construction and development. The difference between construction and development. And there are a couple of illustrations that will help bring these ideas out. Uh, Suppose for a second that you are standing on the assembly line of a car factory and you're waiting for a Corvette to be put together. So you're standing on the assembly line, and you see the first two metal plates come together. Uh, How many of us would say at that point that we have a car? Probably none of us. I mean, maybe it's a car, but maybe it's a refrigerator or a stove, or who knows what else. It could be anything at this point. Now, as you move down the assembly line, you see the frame of the car come together, and you see the wheels put on. How many would say that we have a car at that point? Well, again, probably not many people. It's not fully constructed yet. Well, you move down the assembly line even farther. Now the engine is dropped in. Now the body is placed on, and that car is ready to roll off the assembly line. How many of us would say that we have a car at that point? Probably all of us, right? The car is fully constructed. It's ready to go. Well, many pro-choice advocates view the unborn and abortion in this way. They think that, when the unborn is in the womb, that they are constructed externally, piece by piece. And so when you say that abortion kills a whole human being, well, that simply doesn't make sense to them. Because they're thinking of development in the construction sense. And of course, the unborn is not fully developed yet, so how could killing the unborn actually be killing a whole human being? But Richard Stith provides another example that better captures this idea of development and how the unborn develop in the womb. And so what Stith says is, imagine that you are on a safari in the Mexican jungle, and you're on a tram, and your goal is to capture a rare photo of a black jaguar. Now, as it so happens, as you're on the tour, and you're going by a forest, a jaguar, rare black Jaguar jumps out and you happen to have your Polaroid camera there and you time the picture perfectly and you get the perfect shot of this black Jaguar. And then just like that, the Jaguar is gone. Now, as you have that Polaroid camera, the picture comes out. And of course, if you remember the Polaroid cameras, it takes time for the film development. So when you see that picture, it just looks like a brown smudge. Now imagine I was with you and I took that picture out of your camera, and I ripped it up immediately. I'm I'm sure you'd be upset. That was a rare picture, probably very valuable, probably could have sold that for some money. Now, while you're upset, I say to you, well, don't worry, That, that wasn't a black jaguar on that picture. It was just a brown smudge. How would you respond to that? Well, you might respond by saying, no, the black jaguar was there. Black Jaguar was in the picture, it it just wasn't developed yet. So here's a point. Many people think of the unborn like a car, constructed piece by piece. But the unborn is not constructed externally from the outside, but rather, from conception, is a whole human being that actively guides and directs its own self-development. No one is arguing that the unborn is fully developed, but neither is a newborn, for that matter. But the unborn is a whole human being nonetheless. In other words, you didn't come from an embryo, you once were an embryo. Like the Polaroid picture, you were there at those early stages of development. We just couldn't see you yet. And all you needed was time to develop. So the unborn is distinct, living, whole, and finally, of course, it's human. The unborn has human parents and a human genetic signature. It is not a cat being or a dog being, but is a human being. It is a human organism. Now, if someone wants to deny this, they have to explain how two human beings can produce offspring that isn't a human, but somehow later becomes one. So again, the unborn from conception is a distinct, living, and whole human being. This is what the science of embryology teaches us. So let's look at our argument once more. Remember, premise one of our argument says, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, elective abortion is wrong. Now, so far, we looked at the science of embryology, which tells us that individual human beings begin to exist at conception. And that supports the second statement of our argument since it would mean that elective abortion kills an innocent human being. But science has limits. And so, while science tells us that the unborn are human, science cannot tell us how to treat the unborn any more than it can tell us how to treat newborns or adults. So what about the first statement? It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Now, this premise may seem obvious, but some pro-abortion choice advocates attempt to get around this by arguing that it is okay to kill the unborn because while the unborn may be a human being, they are not a human person. The question you should always ask in this situation is, what's the difference? What is the difference between a human being and a human person? If you're going to say that there is a certain group of human beings that we can kill because they don't qualify as human persons, then you better have an answer to that question. Because that scenario has been played out numerous times throughout history, and it never ends well for that group of human beings who are deemed to not count as one of us. Now in these situations, pro-abortion choice advocates will usually offer up certain qualities or characteristics or properties that they believe disqualify the unborn from being human persons. They will say things like, well, the unborn doesn't look human or is too small or the unborn isn't developed enough or the unborn is still dependent on the mother for life. All of these differences pointed out by pro-abortion choice advocates, differences between the unborn human being you once were and the adult human being you are today can be placed in one of four categories. And not one of these four differences are morally relevant or can serve as justification for killing you back then, but not now. Stephen Schwartz, in his book, The Moral Question of Abortion, summarizes these differences with the acronym SLED Size, Level of Development, Environment, and Degree of Dependency. Memorize this acronym because you will use it often. Again, it's SLED Size, Level of Development, environment, and degree of dependency. So let's look at each one of these differences and see if they can serve as justification for elective abortion. First of all, size. It's true that the unborn are smaller than newborns and adults, but why is that relevant? Is it our size that gives us value or a right to life? Men are generally larger than women. Does that mean that men possess more value or a greater right to life than women do? I think we can understand that size does not equal value. In fact, even my children understand this. As the Dr. Seuss character Horton says, a person is a person no matter how small. What about level of development? It's true that the unborn are less developed than you and I, but again, why is this relevant? Newborns are less developed than toddlers. Toddlers are less developed than adolescents. And adolescents are less developed than adults. If our value is based on development, does that mean it is worse to kill an adult than a newborn? If our value or our right to life is based on development, then there is nothing to prevent the strong from killing the weak. In fact, isn't it true that those members of the human community who are less developed and thereby weaker and more defenseless are also those who are more needful and worthy of our protection? Isn't this why we are so horrified by the nature of crimes against children? We realize that children need to be protected and not exploited. And if little children need our protection all the more, why not the unborn even more so? Well, what about environment? It's true the unborn are inside the mother's womb, but why is that relevant? Where you are has no bearing on who you are. Each one of us changes our location every day. Do we somehow become more or less valuable or human? How does an 8-inch journey down the birth canal change the nature of the unborn from non-human to human? There's nothing magical or mysterious about the birthing process that grants us value or right to life. If the unborn are not already human, merely changing their location can't make them valuable. Finally, what about degree of dependency? It's true the unborn are dependent on their mothers, but why is that relevant? Newborns may be dependent on their mothers as well. Does that mean we can kill them? What about adults who are dependent on insulin or kidney dialysis? Are they somehow less human or less valuable because of their dependency? While it is true we may be dependent on others for our survival, we are not dependent on others for our value. So here's the question. What is it that makes us valuable then? In short, pro-life advocates argue that each of us as human beings are equal by nature not by function. In other words, each one of us is valuable simply in light of what we are, human beings who share a common human nature. We are not valuable based on some function we can perform. But if that is the case, then the unborn are included as well as valuable members of the human community, since they too share our common human nature. Scott Klusendorf points out in his book, The Case for Life, Opponents of the pro-life view assert without justification that strong and independent humans have basic human rights, while small and dependent ones do not. This view is elitist. It violates the principle that once made political liberalism great, a commitment to protect the most vulnerable members of the human community. Pro-life advocates, on the other hand, argue that no human being, regardless of size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency, should be excluded from the human family. In other words, our view of humanity is inclusive and wide open to all, especially to those who are small, vulnerable, and defenseless. On July 1st, 1854, uh, Lincoln wrote this small fragment to address some of the popular arguments put forward by pro-slavery choice advocates who argued that whites should have the right to enslave blacks based on superficial qualities and characteristics such as color and intellect we can learn a lot from lincoln's logic and how he demonstrates the bankruptcy of certain pro-slavery choice arguments So lincoln said this you say a is white and b is black it is color then the lighter having the right to enslave the darker take care by this rule you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own You do not mean color exactly. You mean the whites are intellectually the superiors of the blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But, say you, it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, He has the right to enslave you. Now Lincoln's point is this. If you try to establish human rights, human value, or personhood by appealing to a set of arbitrary degreed properties which carry no moral weight or significance, properties such as color and intellect which none of us share equally, then you end up undermining human rights and value for everyone. Well, what pro-slavery choice advocates did in the past, pro-abortion choice advocates do today. Only instead of arguing that blacks are non-persons based on color and intellect, and can therefore be enslaved, pro-abortion choice advocates argue the unborn are non-persons based on size, development, dependency, and can therefore be killed. But the reasoning of pro-abortion choice advocates today is just as flawed as that of pro-slavery choice advocates then. If Lincoln were alive today and were to address the current abortion debate using the same logic, he might say something like this. You say A is big and B is small. It is size, then, the larger having the right to kill the smaller. Take care. By this rule, you are to be a victim to the first man you meet with a larger body than your own. You do not mean size exactly. You mean human persons are developmentally the superiors of the unborn and therefore have the right to kill them? Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a victim to the first man you meet, with a development superior to your own. But, say you, it is a question of interests. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to kill the unborn. Very well. And if another can make it his interest, he has the right to kill you. Scott Klusendorf, again in his book, The Case for Life, states, In the past, we used to discriminate on the basis of skin color and gender and still do at times. But now, with elective abortion, we discriminate on the basis of size, level of development, location, and degree of dependency. We've simply swapped one form of bigotry for another. Stephen Wagner, who is with another great pro-life organization, Justice for All, offers a very helpful way for us to think more clearly about the issue of human equality. He says something like this, "Uh, As you look around, What is it that makes all of us deserving of equal treatment and possessors of the same basic rights? Each one of us is different. We are different races and sexes. We possess different abilities and functions. We have different beliefs and convictions. So what is it? If each of us is to be treated equally and we all possess the same basic human rights, there has to be some quality or characteristic we all share equally in common. So what is it? There is only one quality we all have equally. We're all human. And being human is not a degreed property. It's not something you are more or less of. You are either human or you aren't. We all have a human nature, and we all have it equally. But if that's the case, if it is our humanity that grounds our equality and value and rights, then the unborn are included as well. As equal and valuable members of the human community, as well as possessors of basic rights from the time they come into existence at conception. Now, Stephen goes on to say, why are sexism and racism wrong? Isn't it because they pick out a surface difference, gender or skin color, and ignore the underlying similarity all of us share? We should treat women and men, African Americans and whites, as equal and protect them from discrimination. Why? Because they all have a human nature. But if the unborn also has that same human nature, shouldn't we protect her as well? So how do we take all of this information so far and summarize it into a one minute soundbite that clearly and persuasively defends the pro-life view? I want you to imagine for a moment that we are in the future Uh, It's Thanksgiving. You're with your family, gathered around the table. And in between the bites of turkey and mashed potatoes, Aunt Betty or Cousin Jack looks at you and asks, Why are you pro-life? Articulate response in one minute or less that makes the case for life. You might say something like this. The reason I'm pro-life is because the science of embryology establishes that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct living and whole human being. Even though you've grown and developed since that time, your essential nature as a human being has remained the same. In fact, there are only four differences between the adult human being you are now and the unborn human being you were then. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. Not one of these differences is morally relevant or can serve as justification for killing you back then. That's because your value as a human being isn't based on how big you are, how developed you are, or your dependency. If that's the case, then none of us are equal in terms of human rights because some of us are bigger, some of us are more developed, and some of us are more or less dependent. Rather, each of us as human beings are valuable and share a common right to life simply in light of being what we are, human beings who share a common human nature. I hope you enjoyed this first talk on the opening case for life. In part two, we will be looking at six bad ways to argue for abortion. And in part three, we will be looking at tactics. Thanks again.